Let's turn now to 2 Samuel chapter 11. The ABC Evening News had an unusual work of modern art that they were uh, reporting on. It was a chair that was affixed to a shotgun. And the way it was viewed was the person was to come and sit in the chair and stare right in the barrel of the shotgun. What made it unusual is the shotgun was loaded. It was attached to a timer, set to a timer, that would go off at an undetermined moment within a hundred years. Did you know there were lines upon lines of people waiting to sit in that chair and stare into the path of the bullet? They all knew that it could go off and would go off at at some moment within a hundred years, but each one of them gambled on the fact that it wouldn't go off, they thought, during their minute in the chair. And so they came and they observed, they looked, and they left. There's a lot of people hearing that that would never, ever do something like that, but they would gamble with their lives in other ways. David was one like that. David gambled with his life, and in a sense, in this chapter, he sat in the chair. But the gun went off. In chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, David is uh, in his midlife. He has been king for a while. Things are settled for him. He has been a man of influence. But his influence gets marred in this chapter. He's a mover and a shaker whose influence gets ruined because of one thing, and that one thing is the S word, sin. S-I-N, ruins his influence in life. This chapter of David and Bathsheba is is pretty familiar turf to most people. In fact, it's probably uh, as famous as the David and Goliath story. At least every movie I've ever seen that Hollywood has produced on the life of David really makes a big deal about David and Bathsheba. In fact, I think they spend an inordinate amount of time on it, frankly. But sin ruins his life. In fact, after reading chapter 11 and thinking back to some of those early episodes of David's life, we wonder, is this the same David? Is this the same shepherd boy who was a man after God's own heart? Is this the same young man who saw Goliath and said, move out of the way, guys. I'll take him on with undaunted courage and faith, saying to that Goliath, I come to you in the name of the living God. Is this the same David who wrote all of those psalms about trust in the Lord and reached such a pinnacle in his life? It is indeed the same man. But now he is safe within the walls of his palace. He is the king. As I said, things have settled down in his life. And in his palace that he built for himself, he becomes the prisoner of his own lust. I was reading this week about the contractor, a very wealthy general contractor who was in charge of building the Tombs Prison in New York. Interesting name for a prison, isn't it? Tombs Prison. He was indicted on forgery charges and sentenced to serve time in the prison he built. And when they walked him down the hallways to his cell, He said to the guard, I never imagined 
that this cell that I have built would one day house me as its inmate. David becomes a prisoner in chapter 11. I've entitled this message, The Seasons of Sinfulness, and we're going to look at it as seasons of the year. There was springtime in Jerusalem and in David's budding career. That turned into a hot summertime in David's thought life. And then finally, fall time when David falls into the sin. And then wintertime in David's soul at the end of the chapter. Now, I didn't just choose these points at random just to be clever and cute, but I really believe that temptation has a pattern about it. That it, it begins very warm and promising. It holds out the allurement of satisfaction, but it ends up in a period of very barren, cold season of one's life. It does for David. He is the king of Israel who's out of fellowship with the king of kings because he falls into sin, and in particular sexual sin, the thing that has ruined churches, the thing that has ruined our country, that is a blotch on society. So let's begin in the first verse and look at springtime in David's city. It's how it begins. It's sort of a lovely setting. It says it happened in the spring of the year at the time when the kings go out to battle. that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. I love spring in Jerusalem. That's when I take tours over there generally, around May. It's a great time to be there. It's warm. Long days, flowers are blossoming. And in David's own life, he was really coming to a place where things were great. It was springtime, you might say, in his life. In chapter 11, he's been king 20 years. He's about 50 years of age or a little better in this chapter. And he is very successful. He has brought Israel up to an economic high point. Militarily, they've never been stronger. Israel as a nation is very secure. Things are going very well for David. He made his mark as a musician, as a poet, as a warrior, as a spiritual leader, and now as a king. Which goes to show us, does it not, that you can never reach a plateau in your life where you're out of harm's way of being tempted. It's like, okay, well now I've arrived at the at the pinnacle of spiritual maturity. I'm beyond temptation. We always need to lean hard on God, right? And somebody might say, well, I'm I'm tempted a lot, so I'm going to go into the ministry. Because there you're so busy doing God's work, you don't get tempted, right? Wrong. You become a target, a moving target. Because your enemy, the devil, doesn't take commitment lightly. And he'll be after you the more committed you become. You know, so often we speak about leaving your first love. You've heard that phrase. It comes out of the book of Revelation. Jesus writes the church of Ephesus and says, I've got something against you. You have left your first love, the relationship with God. You know that perhaps it's easier to leave your first love in the ministry than anywhere else? I say that because familiarity with something can sometimes eclipse the wonder of it. Example. Guy that loves to tinker with cars in the backyard. He just likes to fix things. It's his hobby. Give him a broken car, he's a happy man. He'll fix it. After doing it a few times, he thinks, 
you know what? I'm going to open my own shop. It's going to be my business. Auto mechanic. That which was his hobby, now he has to do it. Soon, it's possible, he doesn't have to, but he can just sort of lose the the spark, the joy of it all. It doesn't have to in ministry, but so often it does, where it becomes to so many a grind instead of a passion. And so here's David, spiritual leader, warrior, king, successful, never more vulnerable than right now. Why? Because not only is he a budding success, but he has a weakness that begins to blossom. We know what that weakness is in this chapter. It's sexual immorality. In verse 2, it happened one evening that David rose from his bed. It was probably an afternoon, took a nap, gets up, walks on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful to behold, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. David is a problem with the opposite sex. It shows up here, but, but I believe it's been brewing a long time. I don't think this is a, a sudden thing that happened in his life. I think it's been an ongoing, unchecked problem with David. Back in chapter 5, I'm going to read you a verse. Chapter 5, verse 13. It says, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Did you get that? What's wrong with that verse? It's in the plural. That's what's wrong with that verse. Concubines and wives. He's got a lot of gals around him. And at that point when he does it, he's already got a bunch of wives. Now he wants more women. And not just more wives, more concubines, courtesans for sexual pleasure. Now before you say, well, that's just ancient times, and that's what kings did whenever they formed foreign alliances, I beg your pardon, that might be kings in those days, but not God's king. Deuteronomy 17 gives some specific instructions for the king of Israel. God said in Deuteronomy 17, a direct quote, And he shall not multiply wives unto himself, lest they turn his heart away. What happened to David is that he didn't read the fine print again, did he? He violated God's law, took wives to himself, and each time you, you, you act in disobedience, your heart gets a little more hardened, a little more impenetrable. You're not as sensitive anymore to the things of the Spirit. And as that callous forms over your heart, it weakens your resolve to obey. And so you'll commit another act and another act and another act. It's like the bird that the man observed standing at Niagara Falls. He noticed that birds would swoop down from the sky, get a drink of water with their beak and fly away. But it was, it was March. It was cold in upstate New York. And the mist of the falls was going up. And the bird would come down and get a drink of water. But ice would form on the end of its wings, little droplets. bird would go up, come back down, more Droplets would form of ice, weighing the wings down. 
So eventually, because the wings were so weighed down, though it tried to flap madly to get away, it was overtaken and fell to its death in the falls. One after another after another, this blossoming weakness goes unchecked in David's life. There's something else to notice in verse 1. It says, it's the spring of the year, the time when the kings go to battle. Notice the end of that same verse, but David remained at Jerusalem. Here's the setting. After the beginning of May, the latter rains in Israel stop, and it's wartime. Sounds funny, doesn't it? Sort of like it's baseball season. It's, it's war season. Okay, man, the winter's over. It's warm. Let's go fight. And that's what they did. The, the kings would typically go out and secure their borders or try to take new land. Now, that was what David grew up as a warrior doing. He became one of Israel's foremost fighting men. He was used to fighting battles. He was always busy. Before that, he was a shepherd and an errand boy. Then he became a warrior. But now he's a king. And he's about 50 years old in this chapter. He's been on the throne for 20 years. And he thinks, hey, that's for the young bucks. These young whippersnappers that like to fight. You know, they just want to get some energy out. Let them go fight. I'm king, man. And so he stays back in his pampered palace in Jerusalem, not staying busy at what he had always done which makes him more vulnerable at this point. If David would have been out on the battlefield with his troops, he would not have been in bed with Bathsheba. Beware of idleness. I don't want to sound like your grandma, but beware of idleness. Satan tempts you more, not when you're busy, but when you're bored. Nothing to do. You look around for stuff to do. Or you're very, very pampered. You just have whatever you want whenever you want it time on your hands. There's a Chinese proverb that says, be not afraid of growing slowly, but be afraid of standing still. David is standing still. Doesn't need to go fight. There's another battle in the home front. Leads us to verse 2. Let's look at it a little more closely. This is the hot summertime in David's thought life. David arose, walked on the roof of the king's house, and From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Now, I know that strikes us in this country as strange, to go outside, stretch, look outside, and see a woman without any clothes taking a bath. Get the setting, the topography of Jerusalem. I've stood on those hills many times. And all the houses are terraced, flat and terraced, down the hill. Well, where does the king build his house? Always on the top. He's the king of the hill, literally. Houses on the apex of the hill, giving him a commanding view of the entire hillside and valleys. That's David's view. He goes outside and he sees everything. I mean everything that night. Even a beautiful woman bathing. Notice a couple of words in that verse. I draw your attention to the words, He saw... And the word, behold. He saw and behold. Two different experiences. The first word, he saw, suggests a glance. He noticed. Hmm. There's a beautiful woman bathing. But then it says she was beautiful to behold. That suggests a gaze. That's where the problem is. 
our, our struggle with lust, our struggle with sin in general, begins here. It begins when the first shots are being fired and, and you win or lose the battle when the first shots are being fired. David, if you stay there, you're going to fall. If you don't run, you'll fall. And the same with us in temptation. If we don't run, we fall. You might say, I don't run from anything. I ain't a coward. Okay, you'll be dead then, soon. The Bible says flee temptation. It will consume you. David noticed and didn't do anything about it except he continued to look. St. Augustine defines sin's progression in these words, a thought, a form, a fascination, a fall. A thought, a form, a fascination, a fall. He saw a beautiful form. He thought about it. He fascinated over it. And he eventually fell to it. The words of Jesus come to mind at this point in the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew chapter 5. He was talking about all of life and he zeroed in on lust. And I'm sure all the men that day had their ears perked up In that verse, when he said, You have heard that it was said by those of old, You shall not commit adultery. And just then, some of the guys were thinking, Doesn't apply to me. Until Jesus said, But I say to you, That whoever looks at another woman, To lust after her, Has already committed adultery in his heart. I think they were kind of fidgeting at that point. Don't you? Whoever looks... To lust. That's in the present tense, by the way. It's a present participle in the Greek language. Whoever continues to look. It's not the glance, it's the gaze. It's not the he saw, it's the behold that's the problem. Looking with the direction toward lusting. The purpose of lust. David's problem was not what he noticed. David's problem was the double take. It was this thing. And kept looking. And it was the thought, the form, the fascination, and the fall. Whenever a man sees a beautiful woman like David saw that night with Bathsheba, there's a series of chemical reactions that go on in the brain. They just do. That's the way we're wired. However, we can control what happens at that point. David could have walked away, right? David didn't have to stand there and go, Okay, I'm going to face this temptation. Here goes. Okay, uh uh-oh. This isn't going well. He could have just turned around, gone inside, closed the curtains, talked to one of his many wives or concubines, but he didn't. He stayed right there. Job even knew, the aged patriarch even knew, the problem begins with what we see. Job said this, I have made, get this, a covenant with my eyes that I should not look at a young woman. Gaze at a young maiden. I've made a covenant. A wise taxi driver once said, He who looketh upon a woman loseth a fender. (laughs) And that's not all he will lose. He will lose much more. And David seems like he loses it all because of what happens in this chapter. Our eyes are like cameras. And our minds are like the emulsion of of a film, a photograph. Your eyes take pictures, and they replay them, right? Instant replay. 
Sometimes when you don't want those thoughts, they're there. The images crop up and the rerun is over and over again. That's why we have to be careful what we let into the eye gate because of that instant replay mechanism. One professor at the University of Utah named Dr. Victor Klein said in this regard, studies show that pornography is progressive and addictive for many. It can often lead to the user acting out his fantasy. Does does here, doesn't it? David sees, he's fascinated, he acts it out. But Dr. Klein says it can lead to the user acting out his fantasy often on children because they're the most vulnerable and easy to control. So watch how you watch stuff, men. None of this, well, I'm just admiring God's creation. You don't look at mountains that way and trees that way. Now, we often focus on David in this story. David did sin in this story. However, if Bathsheba wasn't out there bathing on the rooftop, it would help. She didn't have to be outside doing that for whatever reason. Perhaps some say it's an ancient customs. A lot of commentators look at this and say, we don't exactly know why she was out there in plain view. Maybe it was to attract David. Maybe there was that culpability on her part. But I think there's a message in that. Women, please be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Help us out a bit here. Don't let how you dress become a snare to men who are wired that way when they look at a woman. Don't dress provocatively to draw attention to yourself just because you've got a great figure. Be very careful. Arthur W. Pink said, If lustful looking is so grievous a sin, then those who dress and expose themselves with the desire to be looked at and lusted after are not less, but perhaps more guilty. In this matter, it is not only too often the case that men sin, but women tempt them to do so. How great, then, must be the guilt of a great majority of modern misses who deliberately seek to arouse the sexual passions of young men. Well, David was aroused. He went from springtime in his career to a hot summertime in his own thought life to fall time in his character. David asked, in verse 3, about the woman. And notice this. Someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? I think the way that was phrased served as a warning from God, don't you? Oh, who's this beautiful chick? Uh, She's so-and-so's daughter, and she's so-and-so's Wife. She's a married woman who has a father. She's tied into a family unit. There's relationships behind this object of your desire, David. You know, I found that God often warns us when we're entering into the wrong area. Little red flags go off. He's very faithful to do that. David didn't take the warning. He sent and inquired, and then in verse 4, he sent messengers and took her. Now, can I get blunt for just a minute? Not that I haven't been so far, but... Did David have fun that night? Come on, did he? He had a blast that night. You know why? Sin is fun, right? That's why people do it. It's not like, oh, what a drag, what a sin. 
It's alluring. It's attractive. But it's temporary. That's the kicker. Hebrews 11 talks about those who enjoy, here's the phrase, the passing pleasures of sin. It was exhilarating for David and for Bathsheba. Seems to be mutual. The text doesn't allow there to be any interpretation that it was forced. They had a great time. But it was the passing pleasures of sin and David fell. David fell from integrity. David fell from fidelity. David fell from trust that his children would have in him, that his other wives might have in him, that his country would have in him. He fell from it. He lost it in that moment. To him it was a one-night stand until... Knock at the door. David, I'm pregnant. You're what? I'm pregnant. He thought, oh, well, nobody will know. It's a one-night stand. But now there's a pregnant woman at the door. What does he do? He goes into damage control mode. Cover up. i got to cover it up. That's what we do when we sin, right? Cover it up. So he sends for her husband, who's fighting the battle, brings him home, and says, Uriah, buddy, what's up, man? Hey, you know, you ought to just spend a couple days at home with your wife, hoping that they'll have intimate relations. Nobody will suspect that it's David's child. But Uriah the Hittite, her husband, has more integrity than David. Look at verse 11. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, David, I belong in battle, not in the palace. Ooh, that must have been a sword to David's heart. I belong in the battle like you, not in the palace like you. Not that he's saying it that way, but I'm sure David's going, yeah, right, okay. So it didn't work. He won't go home. He won't lie with his wife. David proceeds then to get the guy drunk, thinking if the guy's going, hey, David, what's up? That he'll just go home and not see what's going on and have an evening with his wife, but he doesn't do it. Even in a drunken stupor, he stays outside and he sleeps in the open. So it goes from bad to really bad to worse. He's sent back to the front lines. This time, David engineers a murder and tells the commander, Joab, hey, put Uriah on the front lines so that he's killed first. And here's my point in all this. Sin doesn't stop with one thing until it's confessed and dealt with and repented of. Sin always leads to more stuff, more sin. Lust led to adultery. Adultery led to deception. Deception led to entrapment. Entrapment led to murder. It's progressive. It's like a cancer takes over. Which brings us to the fourth and final episode of this story, Wintertime in David's Soul. A messenger eventually comes to David after David's order is given. In verse 23, the messenger said to David, Surely the men have prevailed against us and have come out to us in the field, and we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. In other words, David, this is how the battle is going. We're losing. Now, David would be livid at this. However, 
He continues, The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Listen to how cavalier. Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack and attack the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. Why is there no remorse in David? Because inwardly David's going, Whoo! All right, Uriah's dead. No one will find out what I've done. But read on. When the wife of Uriah heard that, da- that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Chapter doesn't end there. That last phrase is most important. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David forgot something. In that moment of fun, in this episode of cover-up, he overlooked a very important thing. Nobody saw, but God saw. God saw it all, right? Proverbs 5 tells us, The ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his goings. He didn't pull one over on God. You think David looked up to heaven and said, You'll never find out. He lapsed temporarily and thought nobody knew. But here's, here's the real issue. He is, at this point, separated from his God. There's a cold winter in relationship to God. From spring as a budding success to summertime and his hot, lustful thought life to fall from integrity to this separation from God. It displeased the Lord. Now, it started out looking so good. But it ended up being so bad for so many people. David, Bathsheba, Uriah, Joab. Men on the field who were killed besides Uriah because of David's plot. One thing did huge, huge damage. One thing. Since the 1900s, American builders have for years used a a type of insulation that's fire retardant. They don't use it anymore. It was asbestos. It's a good insulator. And like I said, it it kept houses and buildings from burning down. 30 million tons of asbestos were used in our country until people realized, oh, this is a health hazard. People can die from it. Harvard Medical Center, medical school, reports that 500,000 people will have died from inhaling tiny particles of asbestos. It kills them. And the report that they put out said, just because there doesn't appear to be an immediate problem, the public must not be fooled. Symptoms may not show up for 30 years or more. And I read that and I thought, oh, that's so much like our enemy, the devil. He's so strategic. He glamorizes sin. It's very good. It's very useful. It's very cool. But breathe it long enough and you'll be dead. I mean, he packages sin well, doesn't he? He doesn't, in his, he didn't come and tempt you saying, warning, the Surgeon General, he doesn't do any of that stuff. This is not good for you, but he, he tells you how good it is. 
person who's tempted by alcohol, do you think the devil comes and says, now before you drink, I just want to tell you, you're going to puke tomorrow. And you're going to get in a car crash and get your license taken away. So just so you know that. He didn't tell him that. He doesn't tell the drug addict when he tempts him, you're going to lose your family and you'll steal money just to get your drug. He doesn't tell the adulterer, you'll lose your family and everything else and your marriage and your children's trust. He just says, it's going to be fun. But ponder that last phrase as you close. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. Folks, why is it that God is the last one considered in an affair? Why is it that we always say, oh, the poor wife and the poor children? And I don't want to minimize that at all. It is tragic. Or the poor husband. You can go either way. What about God? That breaks God's heart. And when David finally realizes this and confesses his sin, Psalm 51 records it. He says, against you and you only have I done this wickedness and sinned in your sight. You know, that's offended a lot of people who've read that. They say, what do you mean against God only? He hurt Bathsheba and he hurt Uriah. Yeah, but first and foremost, what makes sin, sin, is it's against God. I guess the question is, what is your relationship with God like so that that would matter if you displease God or not? If your relationship with God is you're a man after God's own heart, then if it displeases the one you say you really love, bad news. But if it doesn't matter, yeah, God, you know, I see him on Sunday. And no big deal. I'll get over it. This life. Then you'll have a cavalier attitude. But it displeased the Lord. There was a man and his wife. They were in the mall. They were walking through the mall, stopping at a kiosk, examining items. And a beautiful, shapely woman walked by. Caught the man's attention. In fact, the man fixed his gaze upon her and followed her all throughout the mall. And his wife, seemingly nonchalant, didn't even look up from the merchandise she was examining, said to her husband, Was it worth the trouble you're in? It's a good question. Was that little mental escapade worth... You're in big trouble, pal. Was it worth it? We might ask David that. David, was it worth the trouble you're in with God? You've displeased the Lord. It's not worth it, is it? Not worth it. Payday will come. A couple things before we close. Um, This is included in the Bible to show you the effect of lust unchecked. We can see it in his life. Aren't you glad that you're not written about in the Bible? Aren't you glad the Bible's done being written? If there were chapters written about it and they highlighted our life, what might that look like? But here it is written as an example of what happens with unchecked sin, lust. Finally, I want to close on this note. I think everybody knows this is wrong, right? This is sin. Adultery is sin. Immorality is sin. Lust is sin. Hypocrisy is sin. That's why it's forgivable. Jesus is in the business of forgiving sin. That's why we need to call it sin, not a mistake, a boo-boo. It's sin. He didn't forgive boo-boos. He forgives sin. That's what he's in the business of doing. 
You shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. He forgives people. This is New Testament we're in now. That's why the cross is so wonderful to us. Where sin abounds, Paul said, grace abounds much more. Maybe you're in that chair right now, looking down the barrel of that shotgun. Not going to go off while I'm sitting in it. Get out of the chair. Get out of it. It's not worth it. And serve the Lord with all of your heart. And ask Him for forgiveness. Lord, I need cleansing. Give me a new start. He'll do it. Heavenly Father, we have seen the anatomy of sin and temptation in a concrete example of a man who was a spiritual man, who was a leader, who was a, a political figure, who was a great warrior, who is one that is seen as an example in the Bible, who in his midlife failed. Lord, we all sin. There's no clever excuse for it or renaming of it. It is sin. And we rejoice because Jesus came to forgive sin. Forgive our sin, Lord. Cleanse us from unrighteousness. If sin has abounded in our life, may grace overflow as we confess it to you and turn to you. In Jesus' name.